You're listening to the expository preaching ministry of Kootenai Community Church, located in Kootenai, Idaho. We pray that Christ is exalted and your spirit is blessed by the teaching of God's Word. For more information about Kootenai Church, please visit us online at kootenaichurch.org. Our ordinance of baptism is a recognition of our identification with Jesus Christ in His death, His burial, and His resurrection. That is why we baptize by immersion. So that in everything that we do, in all of our functions as a church, in all that we do as believers, it all is tied back to and goes back to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, all of our corporate life together. So we can say He is risen not just on resurrection or Easter Sunday, we can say He is risen tomorrow morning and Tuesday morning and as long as there will ever be time and reality from this point forward, we serve and worship and love and adore a risen Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is that truth is the center of all of Christian truth and reality. It is the crux, it is the central event in God's redemptive plan. We divide history based upon the resurrection of Jesus Christ to that which was before Christ and what has come after Christ. Everything that we do is a celebration of the resurrection Everything that we do corporately and individually all looks to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Because if He is not risen, (laughs) then you are wasting your time here this morning. You're wasting your time in all of your worship and all of your praise and all of your praying. If He is not risen, then there is no Christianity and there is no point to Christianity. It is just a charade, a charade. It is just a facade. It is just a foolish system of beliefs for gullible people if indeed He is not risen. But if He is risen and He is, then that is the singular most important event in all of human history. It is a historical fact with which each and every single one of us must reckon that He is risen. So today, in order to celebrate that, we're not going to be going into the book of Hebrews and continuing our study in Hebrews. We're going to a special passage today. So turn your Bibles to the book of Ecclesiastes. No, I'm just kidding. Not Ecclesiastes, 1 Thessalonians. 1 Thessalonians, chapter 1. Now, we're kind of parachuting into 1 Thessalonians. We're going to be looking at verses 9 and 10. And thankfully, we're not all entirely unfamiliar with the context because Cornell, when he's been filling in for me when I'm gone, has been working his way through 1 Corinthians. But just in case you haven't been here for Cornell's messages or in case your memory is like mine, I'm going to set a little bit of the context for you so that you can kind of understand what Paul is getting at in 1 Corinthians chapter, sorry, 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. In that first chapter, the Apostle Paul in verses 1 and 2 uh, gives thanks to the God for the, the Corinthians, I'm saying Corinthians, Cornell is also going through Corinthians to the Thessalonians. He gives thanks to God for the Thessalonians, he says in verse 2, making mention of you in our prayers, constantly bearing in mind your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. And by the way, by the way, that work of faith and the labor of love and the steadfastness of hope is also tied to the resurrection. There is no point in serving the Lord if He is not risen. So he already begins by, by thanking God for something that was true in that congregation as a result of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Then in verse 4, he says, Knowing beloved brethren, beloved by God, His choice of you. He thanks God for God's choice of the Thessalonian believers. That is the electing grace of God. Verse 5, For our gospel did not come to you in word only, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. 
just as you know what kind of men we prove to be among you for your sakes. So the apostle is aware that that this reality of their work of faith, their labor of love, and their patience of hope in the Lord Jesus Christ, all of that which God had done in their lives was the result of God's choice of them, and then them, because of God's choice of them, having believed the gospel that Paul brought, and they received it readily. So he says in verse 6, you became imitators of us and of the Lord, having received the word with much tribulation, with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. They had welcomely, uh, welcomed and received the word of God so quickly that these Thessalonian believers had been trained transformed by the message of the gospel. And that is what Paul is, is, is marveling at and thanking God for and rejoicing in that when having received that word of truth, they were changed in an instant. And the evidence of their faith was their work of faith, their labor of love and their steadfastness of hope. That was the evidence of their true and genuine salvation in Jesus Christ. And so he says in verse 8, For the word of the Lord has sounded forth from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, but also in every place. Your faith toward God has gone out. The Thessalonian church had not only received the word of God and been converted and started to serve God, but they had become an example to all of the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. All the regions around Thessalonica were talking about the Thessalonians. And they were saying, hey, have you heard about the church in Thessalonica? And that place is the bomb. Those guys, when Paul came into that city, they welcomed him, they received the word of God, and they were changed like that. And they they were transformed from being pagan idolaters into believers in Jesus Christ, and their model of faith and service to the one true and living God is something that was worthy of emulation. They had become an example worth following. And they had started to talk about the Thessalonian church. And what were they saying about the Thessalonian church? You read it in verse 9. For they themselves, that is the believers in Macedonia and Achaia, they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath of of God. They had received the word of God. They had repented, turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. They were waiting for the return of Christ, who promised them that he would rescue them from the wrath that is to come. And I want you to notice at the middle of that, of that phrase in verse 10, the reference to the resurrection of Jesus Christ, whom he, that is God the Father, raised from the dead. Christ is the one whom the Father raised from the dead. And Paul brought that message. They had received it. They had repented. They, had, they were waiting for the return of Christ. And they have been rescued from the wrath that is to come. And that's going to serve as our outline here this morning. Those three things that the risen Christ commands us to repent. That's in verse 9 to turn from idols to serve the living and true God. There's the command of repentance. The risen Christ also promises a return for which we wait. That is in verse 10. And he promises and and provides a rescue from the wrath that is to come in verse 10. Right? He commands a repentance. He has promised a return. And he provides a rescue from the wrath that is to come. So let's look at those three. Beginning in verse 9, we're going to look at the repentance that we are commanded to, uh, to do. We are to commanded to repent. For they themselves report about us what kind of reception we had with you, verse 9, and how you turned to God from idols to serve a living and true God. I want you to notice, before we get into the repentance thing, I want you to notice how the resurrection of Christ in, in verse 10 is stated just as a matter of fact. You notice that? It's almost as if it is assumed. It's stated so matter-of-factly. Whom he, that is the Father, raised from the dead. Paul doesn't try and defend the resurrection. Paul doesn't try and and really speak of the resurrection as if it is a, a myth or a fanciful story. This is how the New Testament presents the resurrection of Christ, just as a historical event that must be reckoned with, not as a fanciful story that we're trying to pitch to people, 
right? Not as something that is unbelievable at all. It is, it is stated and, and treated in the New Testament as if it is the most logical, the most rational, the most historical thing that has ever happened in the history of mankind. The New Testament authors never talk about the resurrection if it's a fanciful tale. None of them ever say, now look, Paul never came into a town and said, look, I got to tell you something that's so unbelievable, so crazy, so insane, so out of there, so out on the fringes. I just, you, bear with me. This is going to sound like a fairy tale, but it's not. Just bear with me. And then tell them about the resurrection and then try and give them evidences of the resurrection and try and give some sort of rational or reasonable response for the resurrection. The New Testament doesn't present the resurrection like that. The New Testament presents the resurrection as an historical event that happened with which we all must reckon. It happened. The New Testament doesn't try and defend it as if it's too fanciful to be believed. In fact, it is presented in such a way that it is simply documented. The New Testament explains it. The New Testament assumes it. And the New Testament proclaims it. And that is the job of the church. To simply say that the Messiah who died on a Roman cross 2,000 years ago, he was buried according to the Scriptures, and he rose again according to the Scriptures. That is the central fact of all of human history. And, and skeptics and atheists and critics and unbelievers and atheists will deny that. They will hate that. They will reject that. They will mock it. But it still stands as a historical truth. It still stands as a historical event. And it is the hope of every believer and every Christian that Christ is risen and that he is risen indeed. And it is presented in the New Testament as a necessary component of human history. In fact, when Paul went to the city of Thessalonica in Acts chapter 17, his message there is described this way, Acts 17, verses 1 to 3. This is Paul coming into Thessalonica, and here's what he did. Now, when they had traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them, and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead, and saying, this Jesus, whom I am proclaiming to you, is the Christ. Now, Paul gave evidence, but his evidence was the Old Testament Scriptures. He turned to Psalm 16 and said, see here, David promised that God would not allow his Holy One to undergo decay. He turned to Psalm 22 and said, see this one whose hands are pierced and who's, who's thirsty and who's, who dies in a miserable, miserable fashion that, that David prophesied about? That one rises from the dead. He turned to Psalm 53 and said, This one upon whom the Lord has laid our sin and who was beaten for us and by whose stripes we are healed, this one lives to see his posterity. And they turned to Psalm 110 and said, This Messiah who came is coming again to rule and to reign and to make his enemies a footstool for his feet. The proof that Paul gave was that the Old Testament promised and predicted a resurrection of the Messiah. It was a necessary component of human history. It had to happen. Why? So that the Scriptures would be fulfilled. Psalm 16, Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Isaiah 53, Genesis 3, that that serpent would wound the one, the seed of the woman, but he would not destroy or kill the seed of the woman. He would be wounded. His, his, his suffering would be temporal. The destruction of the serpent, uh, per permanent. And Paul had to give evidence that that was what the Old Testament promised and predicted of the Messiah. And now you read through the Old Testament, you see Jesus Christ on every page and, and all the way through all of the temple sacrifices and the feasts and the festivals and everything. It all points to Him. The resurrection is promised and predicted. And since God has sworn that He would raise His Holy One from the dead, it had to happen. It could not be otherwise. And so the resurrection of Christ happened. It was necessary to fulfill Scripture. And so that is my approach today, this morning. I'm not going to argue and give evidence for the resurrection, though we could do that, and I've done that before. But today we simply assume that the resurrection is a historical reality and that Christ is risen just as the Scriptures promised and just as the Scriptures declare. That is the New Testament message. 
that Jesus Christ died on a cross to pay the penalty for sinners, just as Scripture promised, that He was buried in a rich man's tomb, just as Scripture promised, Isaiah 53, that He rose again the third day, just as the Scriptures promised, Psalm 16, and that He has ascended to heaven where He sits at the Father's right hand, just as Psalm 110 promised, and He is coming again to judge the living and the dead, just as Scripture has promised. God has promised that these things will take place and that these things are true. And this is why it is central to Christianity. So what then are we commanded to do? We are commanded to repent in response to that. That's why Paul, when he came in to Thessalonica and presented to them Jesus Christ, that the Scripture had to be fulfilled. He had to die. He had to rise again. And he is. And then Paul said, this Jesus who has died and rose again is the Christ that I am proclaiming to you. And the Thessalonians welcomed that message and embraced that message. And so verse 9 says, they turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. They turned to God from idols. And the, the, the phrase living and true is intended to be a contrast and a stark one with the false and dead idols that they had served. There is only one God, He is living and He is true, and there is only one true God. And so every other God that is worshipped by all of the nations and all of the pagans and all of the cults are false gods. Because there is one true and living God. And so the Thessalonians then turned from their idols to serve the living and true God. And this is as wonderful and glorious an illustration of what true repentance is as you can possibly hope for in all of Scripture. Because they didn't just, in worshiping their idols and hearing Paul preach Jesus, a God who was raised from the dead, they didn't add Jesus to their pantheon of pagan gods in some sort of a... what's the word I'm looking for? Syncretism, where you add things. Syncretism, that's the word. Sometimes i got to go through the Rolodex in my head. In some sort of a syncretistic fashion where they add Jesus Christ to the pantheon of pagan deities that they were already worshiping. They didn't do that. When Paul came in and proclaimed a risen and glorified Savior, they knew what they had to do. That was to abandon all of their idols, all of their paganism, all of their pagan practices, all of their worldliness and their fleshly idolatry, and to turn to that God and worship and serve Him. And that is genuine repentance. Genuine repentance is not just changing your mind. It is changing your direction. It is changing your behavior. It is changing the God that you worship. And there is nothing more central to us human beings who are made to worship. There's nothing more central to our identity than who our God is. And the pagan idolater who worships a pagan god, there is nothing more core to the center of his being than that pagan idolatry. And repentance meant turning from that and embracing the one true and living God. So Paul says, everybody around you, everybody in Macedonia and Achaia is marveling at your true and genuine repentance, that you turn from idols to serve the living and the true God. And not just adopting another god, but abandoning your former way of life. And that repentance is not just a dead repentance. It's not just a change of mind, but true biblical genuine repentance always issues in a change of lifestyle and heart. And that is why they began to serve the living and true God. It wasn't a dead repentance where they just said, all right, we don't like pagan gods anymore. We like your God. It wasn't just that. It was that they did a 180 from their pagan idolatry to their worship of Yahweh. And in doing so, they began to aggressively serve the one true and living God because true genuine repentance always issues in worship and in service. And they rendered acts of service to the one true God. That is a life of obedience. So we return to repentance here in just a second. Let's look at the second thing. Not only does the risen Christ command repentance, but second, he promises a return. Look at verse 10. And 
not only had they turned, but they were also waiting for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead. Jesus Christ is risen. Because He is risen, we can know Him, we can love Him, we can worship Him, we can adore Him, we can obey Him, and we do. And we serve Him, and our acts of service rendered are rendered to a Messiah who has been raised from the dead. And because He is risen, He is also coming again. Because His resurrection was followed by an ascension. And He has gone into heaven and taken His seat at the right hand of, of the throne of God. And there He sits even now making intercession for those who are His. But He will not stay there forever, for He will return. And when He returns, He will return to establish His kingdom. He will return to judge His enemies. And He will return to fulfill all of the Scriptures that have been promised in the Old Testament and the New Testament regarding what the Messiah would do. He is coming again. And we wait for Him. And this coming again is the very thing that Jesus Himself promised. In fact, when He ascended into heaven, the angels who stood by, were the disciples were watching Him ascend into heaven, and the angels who stood by said, Men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into the sky? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into the heaven will come in just the same way as you have watched Him go into heaven. That was the promise of the angels. And Jesus Himself promised in John 14, verses 1-6, through 6, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in Me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, what? I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there you may be also. That was his promise. In Matthew chapter 16, verse 27, For the Son of Man is come, going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he will then repay every man according to his deeds. That is why repentance is necessary. Matthew 24, verse 30, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky, and then all the tribes of the earth will mourn, and they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Matthew chapter 25, verse 31, When the Son of Man comes in His glory and all the angels with Him, then He will sit on His glorious throne. That's what we wait for. You see, we've turned from idols to serve the living and true God, and now we are waiting for something to happen. We are expectantly waiting for Him to fulfill His word that He will come again and He will come in clouds of great glory. He will come to receive us to Himself. We're waiting for His return. In fact, Paul writes to the, second, the Thessalonians in the second epistle, chapter 1, and he says this, For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with His mighty angels in flaming fire, dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. These will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of His power when He comes to be glorified in His saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed. In Titus chapter 2, verse 11, Paul says this, The grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly lusts, and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of our great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we wait for. So we live in holiness now, having repented of our sin. We live in holiness now because we know He is coming again, because He is risen. And this return is necessary to fulfill the promises that He made. The promises of a kingdom, the promises of judgment to come, the promises of righteousness, the promises to gather together His people and to avenge Himself upon His enemies and those who will not obey Him. He has promised all of that. Currently, He is seated at the Father's right hand, waiting for that appointed time until His enemies be made a footstool for His feet. And that's what we, did, we read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 at the beginning of the service. 
That He is going to gather together all of His people and present that kingdom and all of those whom the Father has given to Him to the Father and the Father will give that back to the Son and all things will be subject to the Father and Christ will be all in all. That kingdom will all be given to Him. All in fulfillment to the promises. And so we wait. But it is not an inactive waiting. It's a waiting where we are actively serving the living and true God. Because we are waiting for His Son, whom He raised from the dead, to come again just as He has promised. And this return of Christ is mentioned in every single chapter of 1 Thessalonians. Every single chapter, the return of Christ. Chapter 4, chapter 5, describe it in great detail, but it's mentioned at the end of chapters 1, 2, and 3. Every chapter mentions the return of Christ. It's the central theme of this epistle. Because there is a connection between His resurrection and His return. If He is not risen, then you don't need to worry about any kind of return. He's not coming again. If He didn't fulfill His word to to rise from the dead, He's not going to fulfill His word to come again. He's a liar and a fraud. But if He is risen, He will come again. You have everything to fear if you're not in Him. Everything to fear. He is returning to fulfill His word, to judge His enemy, to establish His kingdom, and that is great news for a believer because that's what we're waiting for. But it is terrifying news to you if you are an unbeliever. That is the one thing you do not want to happen. You do not want to see Him. For you will stand before Him naked in your own self-righteousness with nothing to commend you before Him. And you will face Him in His wrath for your sin. That return is a terror to the unbeliever. Now look at the end of verse 10, the third thing. This, ris- this risen Christ also provides a rescue. He commands repentance. He has promised to return, and He provides a rescue. Verse 10 says, We are waiting for His Son from heaven whom He raised from the dead, that is Jesus, who rescues us from the wrath to come. There are various kinds of wrath of God mentioned in Scripture. There are two of them that are kind of in view here in this passage, one of them primarily. Primarily the kind of wrath that is mentioned and in view in this passage is what we call an eschatological wrath. It means the end times wrath. Eschatology is the study of end times, and eschatological wrath is that wrath that will be poured out at the end of time upon an unbelieving world. There is an eschatological wrath that is to come. I think that that is primarily what Paul has in mind because he mentions in connection with the day of the Lord in chapter 5 that we have not been appointed to that wrath. And so Paul knows that Christ has come to deliver us not only from that end times wrath that is commonly called the day of destruction or the day of the Lord, but also the eternal wrath. And that's the other kind of wrath that is in view here. And eschatological wrath is the wrath of God associated with the end of times. And it's called the day of the Lord in the Old Testament. It's called the day of the Lord in the New Testament. It describes that period of time at the end of human history when the Messiah will return and the wrath of God will be poured out on unbelievers and unbelieving nations. And, and that eschatological wrath is a temporal wrath. It's, it's temporary in the sense that people will suffer it and then they will die, but the eternal wrath is even worse because the eternal wrath, there's no end to the eternal wrath. That's why it's called eternal wrath, and that's what we call hell. And hell is the place where unbelievers go and those who have not been saved, have not repented and not been redeemed, who have rejected and rebelled against God, they will get exactly what they deserve. That is eternal wrath and eternal hell. We are delivered as believers not just from the eschatological wrath, at the end of time, but we are delivered from an even worse and more significant and enduring wrath, and that is the eternal wrath of God. We have been delivered from hell. I think Paul has in mind both of those, and both of those are true, and if we have been delivered from the greater wrath and eternal hell, I do not believe as Christians that we will be subject to the lesser wrath, which is the eschatological wrath. We have been delivered from all of the wrath of God, because those who are in Jesus Christ get this rescue. Now, who is it that is rescued? Paul says, that He rescues us from the wrath to come. Who's the us? He's talking to believers in Thessalonica and including Himself. It is believers who are rescued from the wrath of God. Those who have turned to God from idols, 
those who serve the living and true God, those who have repented of their sins and come to place their faith in Christ and Christ alone, those who have been born again by the Holy Spirit, they are the ones who are delivered from the wrath that is to come, both eschatological as well as the eternal wrath of God. If you have not been rescued from that wrath, then Scripture describes you as a child of wrath. In fact, Ephesians chapter 2 says, you're children of wrath. We once were children of wrath, even as the rest. Before we were in Jesus Christ, we were in this camp, in this group called children of wrath. That is, children characterized by wrath, under the wrath of God. Ephesians 5, 6 says the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Colossians 3, 6 says the wrath of God is going to come upon the sons of disobedience. John 3, verse 36, John says, He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not believe, the wrath of God abides on him. If you're an unbeliever here today, the wrath of God hangs over your head like the sword of Damocles. And it can come crashing down at any moment. And it is the just wrath of God that you deserve because of your sin. You say, why, why am I under the wrath of God? Because you have never repented and turned from your idols to serve the living and true God. And idolatry is not the only sin that needs to be repented of. Scripture commands us to repent of our lust, our idolatry, our hatred, our anger, our adulteries, our fornications, our gossip, our slander, our lying tongue, our blasphemy. Scripture commands us to repent of all of those things. It's not just idolatry that unbelievers need to repent of. It is all of the, all of the violation of the law of God contained in Scripture. And the law of God shows us God's holiness, and it should drive us to understand our need for a Savior and help us to understand our need for a Savior. That if you have lied, Scripture promises you will see your part in the lake that burns with fire. All liars will have their part there. And if you have lusted in your heart, it's the same thing as committing adultery. And if you've taken the Lord's name in vain, He promises you He will not hold you innocent on the day of judgment for taking His name in vain. If you have not turned to Jesus Christ, you have heaped up a helping of wrath that hangs above your head, waiting until that day when you breathe your last, and then that wrath will be poured out upon you in judgment. The judgment that you deserve. God is not going to pervert eternal justice and turn a blind eye to your sin. He is not going to let you skate. He is going to see that justice is done and that every sin is punished and that every rebel gets exactly what they want and what they deserve. This is God's promise to you. His promise. Believers, He has delivered from the wrath that is to come. And so God commands repentance. God commands this day that you repent. In Acts chapter 17, after Paul left Thessalonica, he went and he preached on the, the, the hill in Athens and there, with all of those unbelievers before him, Paul said, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men, to all people everywhere, that they should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness, and he has furnished proof of this judgment by raising that judge from the dead. He's talking about Christ. Christ is that judge. And God has furnished proof that there is a judgment coming by raising the judge from the dead. The resurrection is a promise of the judgment that is to come. And so God commands you now to turn from your sin to him. That's repentance. Why? Because there is a judgment coming and all men will stand before him. And the books will be opened up and every crime and every misdeed and every violation of his holy law will be read and the sentence will be read in front of you and you will be found guilty. And God will make sure that justice is done and he will not pervert eternal justice and he will not turn a blind eye to your misdeeds. He's not going to call them mistakes and boo-boos and just let you skate through and bring you in because he loves you. He will do exactly what he has promised to do, and that is to execute justice. This God under whose wrath you abide offers you clemency. Even now, right here today, he is ready and willing to receive you and to forgive you 
and to take away your sins and give you his righteousness, but you must accept that on his terms, not yours. His terms are repentance and faith. Turn from your sin and believe upon the Son, the divine Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, who came to this earth and lived a perfect life and died in the stead of sinners and paid the price for sin so that you may be forgiven and have eternal life. If you will not believe, it is only because you love darkness rather than light, because you love your sin rather than salvation, and you would rather die under the wrath of God than to live under His grace and under His dominion. If you will not repent, it is because you love your lusts and your idols, your lies, your idolatry, your rebellion, and your pride. And it's because you want absolutely nothing to do with this God and with His grace. And I promise you that if you will not repent, you will get exactly what you want. Nothing to do with this God and with His grace. But you will have everything to do with this God and with His holy wrath that even abides on you even now. Therefore, Scripture commands you to repent, to turn, to believe upon Him, and to be forgiven even now. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a promise of two things. It is a promise that there is a judgment that is to come, and Christ is that judge, and He will sit on His throne, and all men will stand before Him, and the books will be opened, the charges will be read, and you will be guilty, and He will execute judgment upon all those who have not fled to Him as their refuge and find their refuge in Him. It is also a promise of this, that He will rescue you from the wrath, of come, because, wrath to come because He died for you and He rose again and He welcomes you and invites you and commands you this day to repent and find clemency and forgiveness in Him or face Him as your judge. I promise you that you will bow the knee with gritted teeth as a rebel under the scepter of His judgment or you will bow the knee in love and adoration as a co-heir of His kingdom under the banner of His love, but you will bow the knee. That I promise you. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical event with which all people must reckon. Own Him as your Savior or face Him as your judge. That is what Easter Sunday means. Let's pray. Father, we thank You for so precious a salvation provided in Your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank You that by Your grace You have made a salvation available that is sufficient and able to pay the full price for all the sins of all who have believed and will believe upon Your Son. We thank You that we can rejoice in that payment and in the resurrection of our Lord. We thank You that we can place our faith in Jesus Christ with the confidence that you will raise us from the dead and that you have provided in him a rescue from the wrath that is to come. Be honored today as we rejoice in this great salvation, reminded again of what Christ has done for us. And we pray that the Lord Jesus Christ would be glorified and honored to receive sinners to himself. Draw your sheep, your people to you, that Christ may receive the full reward for all of his suffering, drawing his people to that eternal kingdom for which we wait and we wait for that Son from heaven whom you've raised from the dead that we may honor and glorify him forevermore. Thank you for this precious salvation and thank you for the resurrection of Jesus Christ in whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the latest podcast from Kootenai Church. If you'd like to learn more about Kootenai Church or to donate to our church ministry, you can do so online by visiting KootenyChurch.org. We hope you enjoyed this podcast and pray you'll join us again next time. Once again, thank you for listening.